0: So tonight we come to Hebrews chapter 8, which is a very uh, complex chapter, but we should be used to that now in our study through Hebrews, our, I believe, 21st week in Hebrews, and we finally made it to chapter 8. I'll only deal with the first few verses as you can look down in your Bible and see that we are careening towards what I believe to be the largest uh, single Old Testament quotation in the New Testament, which is what we'll be tackling next week. But for the sake of tonight, we're going to look again at what the writer of Hebrews is trying to convey to us as God's people, and I'm going to try to convey to you afresh and anew how critically important it is that we have ears to hear and hearts willing to receive as we consider the things that God would say to us. So if you get your handouts out, you see that essentially for weeks now we've been studying how the writer of Hebrews has been emphasizing the importance of understanding what it means to have Jesus as our high priest. Now, I'm not a mind reader, but I know what you're thinking. Those of you that have walked week by week through this with us, I mean, you're going, there is no way you could have anything to say about a high priest that we haven't already talked about in the last month. But you would be wrong. And I just want you to consider some things, okay? Let me try to sway you. Mentally, to really zero in on this conversation we're going to have over the next 20 some odd minutes. How many times do you think the children of Israel would have utterly perished in the wilderness had it not been for Moses? Have you ever read through the Exodus account? Have you ever considered time after time after time... They literally would have been human lightning rods had it not been for the function of Moses, who was functioning as their priest, right? And for example, remember in Deuteronomy chapter nine where we have the uh, re, you know the the retelling of Moses on Sinai when he receives the law from God so he's up on the mountain with God having this glorious moment with God meanwhile Aaron and everybody else is inaugurating the first Mardi Gras down at the bottom of the the mountain and let me just set the tone for you these these words rattle me they rep They're their they make me think about times when I've been uh, in the crosshairs of The wrath of my wife. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 9, this is what God says. To Moses now, he says, Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their names from under heaven. That I will make you a nation. See, he's already done this once before, right? What happened when the wrath of God came to bear on the sin of man and Moses wasn't there? Do you remember what happened pre-Moses? You know, the drunk guy building the boat. It didn't go so good for the world, did it? Everybody died. Remember that? But when Moses comes on the scene, same sinful people, same uh, disastrous behavior. And here's what God... This is what Moses says. For I was afraid, this is the part that reminds me of Lisa. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was angry with you. That's what Moses said to the people. But here's what he says. As the Lord would destroy you, but God listened to me at that time if it wouldn't have been for moses i mean in other words god is sovereignly in control and orchestrating all this but he's trying to teach us something in the old covenant he's trying to prepare us to receive what he wants to the bounty that he wants to lay on us in the new covenant and in order to do that we have to sort, we have to understand that listen the the old covenant is not uh, bad it's fantastic and amazing and wonderful and unbelievable beyond belief that if you were a recipient of the old covenant I mean what were you, where were you before that and suddenly God reveals himself makes a covenant with you gives you opportunity to uh, fellowship with him he, he establishes a tabernacle. He indwells the tabernacle. He allows you to have a go-between. And Moses, he interacts. I mean, think of, think of all, just why. What did they do to deserve that? Where, what, was, what was Israel that made them so uh, remarkably captivating that of all the people on earth, God would choose them? It is the sheer and utter grace of God To just choose the most unlikely of people and bestow blessings on them in the old covenant. But the new covenant is like a nuclear grace bomb on top of uh, that, just obliterates everything in the past and, and brings us into an unthinkably glorious predicament with God. So, we've also seen. That the Old Testament priesthood was always intended to be temporary. It was always. It's just establishing. It's a shadow. The writer of Hebrews has told us this multiple times. It's just to prepare us for what's to come. So the next stop on our journey is to compare the covenants that the priests mediate. So let's talk for a moment about covenants. A divine covenant would be a covenant that's not between two people because it's divine. So it's between God and man. A divine covenant is an agreement or think of it as a treaty that God makes with man. Now, on the surface, it seems sort of, mm, you know, a little bit blase. God basically said, I mean, if if you just dropped in out of history and Picked up a Bible and started reading it. You probably wouldn't be that astonished that the Bible, you know, has all this verbiage in it about God speaking to man and saying, "Well, if you do this, I'll do this," and you know, "I I covenant with you to do so on and so forth." And if you do these things, I'll bless you. And that may not shock you, but would you fully be able to grasp? In other words, when God gives the Ten Commandments, for example. He, he's giving instruction to, to us as to how we can order our lives and live our lives in a successful way, right? But they're predicated upon our response to them, our engagement with them, our obedience to them. In other words, the Ten Commandments only work if you apply them, right? If you ignore them... Well, then you run into them, you know, like a, like a brick wall, right? Okay. Now, I want you to consider something with me. If you go back this tonight, when you go home, some of you will be thinking about this on the drive home, so that will be good. You'll go home. You get your Bible out. You go back and read the first few chapters of Genesis, and I want you to notice something. I want you to notice how God interacts with man pre fall Before sin comes into the picture, when sin is not in the equation, God makes all sorts of promises to to Adam, doesn't it? He makes all sorts of covenants with Adam. And so He he gives Adam access to all sorts of things. He he promises Adam all sorts of things. And you know what? There's no condition. It's just 100% grace. God just says, oh, by the way... Uh, you can have this. By the way, you can eat of this. By the way, you can do this. By the way, you can... Sin comes into the picture and then things start to change. Once sin comes into the picture, all the covenant relationships, all the divine covenants shift. Now, that pre-fall relationship is symbolic of... The future relationship that we'll have in glory with our Heavenly Father. You see, because you don't have to think about it long to figure out that in heaven, there's not going to be any need for conditionality, is there? No, because there'll be no sin. So God will just freely and infinitely and forever give of His unending grace. So remember now that the, the, the priest's responsibility was to be a go-between before God and man. And, you know, I, this is, you got this. Okay, I, I know you do. But why is this so unbelievably critical? Why can you not exist? You cannot exist a moment of a day not a moment of a day without a high priest you can't do it but we don't understand we don't we don't because we just it's something we don't really hold on to or sink our teeth into but I'm hoping that by the end of tonight that will be different well because there's at least two things that are always true always number one God has always and will always keep his part of the covenant. That's never going to change. He always has, he always will. That's the way it is because that's his nature and that's his character. And it is just a foregone conclusion. That whatever he says he's going to do, that he's going to do. Whatever, he will always, always, always keep his part. But the other thing that's always true is that man has always and will always fail to keep His part of the covenant. You see, we have never, could never, and will never in this lifetime ever be able to keep our end of any covenant that's ever been made. We can't do that. So now you begin to see the the problem, the need. Therefore, we desperately need a priest to offer sacrifices to atone for our failure and allow for us to have access to God. We have to fixate. You have to fixate on access to God. Access to God. So remember, Hebrews is written to this people that are beleaguered by persecution and suffering. And there's a great temptation among them to abandon the faith and to you know, get themselves out of uh, trouble, just turn back to their ritualistic Judaism and avoid all the persecution. You can just solve all your problems. All you got to do is abandon Christ. And so the author here is going to great lengths for a very specific reason about all this Jesus as our high priest and his function. Because they're going to have to understand the significance of this relationship in order, not just, it's it's two-sided. Most people think it's just so that they can know for sure that they're saved. But we dealt with that, right? Remember that whole conversation? We dealt with all that. So why, are we, why do we continue to talk? Well, because the writer of Hebrews is, is concerned for the continuance of their faith. That they'll continue to walk in faith. So Jesus has a finished work, right? Hebrews has been very thorough about the finished work of Christ and how it was a one-time offering of his life for us. His perfect sacrifice. But then there's an unfinished work. The work of intercession that we talked about last week. That's ongoing. That He always lives to make intercession. So there's this ongoing work. So He finished, he finished His sacrificial work, if you will... And sat down at the right hand of the Father and began his his never-ending or at least unending as long as this earth the way it is currently. Until his return, his unfinished work of intercession. So what we have is daily this continual perfect representative who has lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, risen from the grave and defeated that death. And whoever pleads the merits of his finished work on our behalf. So he's continually interceding and pleading the merits of what was finished on our behalf because we're in continual need of the gospel. Why? Well, just think about some of the verses in Scripture that talk about this. Remember back in Hebrews chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Anybody here got any weaknesses? But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. So you think about our daily temptation to sin. Our continual temptation to be disingenuous. So when we're being tempted, we go to Jesus, and as our high priest, he sympathizes with us, and he gives us grace and mercy in our time of need. Isn't that what the Bible says? So it, the degree to which you're in uh You're in contact with your frailty, is the degree to which you would so greatly appreciate what God is trying to teach us here. So, what's so amazing about a, this, the, this covenant relationship that gives us, gives us access to God is that God is not obligated to make a covenant with us at all. There's absolutely no obligation on his part whatsoever. Why in the world would He even bother? Why would He even make a covenant? What I mean, there's no reason. He's not obligated to do that. But yet the Lord willfully and graciously places Himself under obligation to fulfill His end of the agreement, which He does perfectly all the time. Now, I'm very specific about the Lord places Himself under obligation. Because when you think about, wait a minute... God can't be under obligation. Yes, He can. Because remember the whole conversation about God swearing. Who does God swear by? Remember that conversation? He swears by who? Himself. And why did why did Hebrews want us to know that? Because we need to understand that when God willfully makes a covenant, He puts Himself under obligation to Himself. Because His nature and character do not allow him to ever fail to keep a promise or to ever fail to uh, do the things that he's promised to do. And so he's under the obligation of the highest obligation in the universe, which is him, his character and nature and the perfection of who he is. He simply cannot lie. He cannot. So when the Bible says he cannot lie, it's just underscoring the fact that when he promises something he's under the obligation of his inability to fail in any way so where does it leave us well it leaves us in a in a situation because we've got this gracious God who has purely out of the goodness of his heart covenanted with us to do things that he will utterly fulfill everything that he said that he would do. The problem is is that when you read the scripture you realize that we're involved in the covenant. In other words, God says if you do these things, I'll do these things. Well, in case you, you know, missed everything since the fall, you cannot hold up your end of the agreement our greatest need is the ability to meet God's covenant requirements otherwise we'd have utterly no hope and here's the thing we can't there's not one covenant in scripture think about it God gives the 10 just we we'll just go back to the 10 commandments God gives the 10 commandments well good luck with that how you doing on that So who in here wants to stand up and give testimony about your blazing success at scorching the Ten Commandments on a continual basis? You have no chance whatsoever. Zero chance. He gives the Ten Commandments. Now here's how you need to live. You do these things, everything's going to go good for you. The part that's, you know, assumed here is that, well, I mean, but you have obviously... Utterly zero chance of that happening. In fact, you can't even go two seconds without violating them, right? But yet there's this carrot dangling of all these things that God promises to do that He will do. So how is all that going to happen? Well, you're gonna have to have a you're gonna have to have somebody mediating the covenant. Because without a mediator, it's not gonna happen. So I put uh, Genesis 17 in your handout and and just underlined. I just want you to see that when a covenant is made, there's a good example for you in in the Scripture, the first 10 verses of Genesis 17. So I just underlined all, I mean, just look at all of the, the, God is the one who's saying, I'm going to do this, 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 I'm going to do this. And then all the way down at the end it says, "This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you, and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised." Well, remember when we were studying through uh, Joshua? Well, we blew that out of the water, right? That didn't. We even when it was something as simple as this. It's all God. So, when God says, I will fulfill my covenant obligations, well, what he's doing is he's binding himself to do them. He's he's putting himself on the line, essentially. He's because he could just be silent, he doesn't have to do anything, but he does. And so in having a high priest is this unbelievable provision. So if God were to, let's say hypothetically here, fail to uphold his part, well then it would make him a liar and he could not be trusted. So one of the reasons why we have all this historical documentation is so that we can come to the place where we are as full recipients of this glorious new covenant. And we can, I mean, there is literally no rational thinking person could study the scriptures and come to the book of Hebrews, starting in Genesis, come to the book of Hebrews and Doubt the faithfulness and 100% guaranteed accuracy of God to keep every promise and to fulfill every single thing He said He would do. Well, because, well, well why does God, why is that so important? Because what happens when you have a people who are a recipient of a gloriously, unbelievably, fantastic promise, but who undervalue the promise, or who don't appreciate the covenant, or don't understand what they have in a high priest? Well, they flounder, and God God wants you to flourish, and so all of this is to set us up and to establish us and to put us in a position where we can utterly and completely flourish. This, this conversation about a high priest, the fact that Jesus is our high priest is proof positive that this thing is so rigged it's unbelievable. I mean, is this, this is the most rigged, relationship in the history of the world. God has rigged it so that we can't lose. It's rigged. I'm telling you. you, you all the odds are stacked against you, and yet you're guaranteed to win every time. Because no matter what happens, to die is gained, right? So if the worst possible thing happens, you still win. Think about it for a second. So the final stage of God's covenant rests entirely upon the shoulders of Jesus. So we move to this new covenant where we have this great mediator. We, have, we, we, we take what we learned about uh, having a high priest from the old covenant, essentially from Moses, but all through the old covenant. We, we take all that and now we move to it all rests on the shoulders of Jesus. Okay. Man, that's rigging it right there. You talk about bringing a ringer in. We're like the, the bad news bears. You know, we're, we have no chance of pulling it together or doing what we ought to do or playing as a team or anything. And then, you know, God puts Jesus on our team and says, all right, Jesus, you you go on that team. Well, instantaneously, we become, well, we're undefeated. Once you're on his team, you're undefeated. So he alone was the sinless priest, and he alone made the only perfect sacrifice for sin. Okay? Okay. I just think about that. Now, remember last week when I talked about the pivotal passage in the book of Hebrews from chapter 7? For it was fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Remember that passage? Now, why does Hebrews... Why do we need to know, why doesn't it just say, for it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest? Why do we have to know that he was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens? Because it's just ensuring that we understand who he is and what he's done. And so it shows the greatness of Jesus and the impact that he brings in. Now, with all of that being said, look at verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 8. So the writer of Hebrews says, now the point in what we are saying is this. Now now look, look at me for a second. This is not talking about, now the point of what I said in the last five sentences This is now the point of everything that I've said in the last seven chapters. The entire conversation from Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 until now. All of that. 21 weeks of sermons. Everything that we've talked about. The whole entire package up until now. The point of what we've been saying is this. So that is a huge colon right there. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, let's just think this through for a second. First of all, I want you to see that there is the, like I said, the finished work. The, there's a completed work that makes Jesus amazing. So he's superior because of completion. Because he's seated, which means he finished one thing. But here's what it doesn't say. it's He's seated. He, he's not sleeping. He's not, you know, he, he's not now off duty until the second coming. He's, he's done doing one thing and now seated and functioning doing another. But the fact that something is completed is... Because nothing was ever completed in the old priesthood which we've exhaustively talked about over the last few weeks. So he's not just seated showing a finished task, but he's seated in heaven. In heaven. So in a very specific place. He's a specific person who accomplish specific things and who is seated in a very specific place now let's connect the dots let's go back to john 17 the high priestly prayer where jesus we get to eavesdrop on him praying to the father when jesus had spoken these words he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said father the hour has come glorify your son that the son may glorify you So this hour has come since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now remember what I said in the beginning. We need a high priest in order to have continual, what was the word we used? Access. It is access to God. Jesus then comes along and says, this is eternal life. And essentially what he says is, people would have access to you. You see, that they may know you, the one and only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on the earth, having established the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, let's make the connection. Watch what the writer of Hebrews does. So this high priest who's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, verse 2, a minister in, where is he? The holy places... You see the connection? In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So we're now in a, a, the true tent. So we're not in the tabernacle, remember? Because in the old covenant, you could meet with God through Moses, but at the tabernacle. Remember that? But no, no, we're to the true tent now, which is not on earth. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for the high priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since these are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now, if you go back and read Exodus 25, in Exodus 25, when God's having a conversation with Moses, he says to Moses, he says, now, Moses, this is what you're going to do. And he's he says, you're going to you're going to build you're going to build me a house. You're going to build me a tabernacle. You're going to build me a tent. But you're not just going to go down there and build a tent. You're going to build the tent exactly the way I say you're going to build it. And so for starters, you're going to go down and have an offering. But in the offering, I don't want you to just say, all right, we're going to have an offering. Just everybody give. That's not what it says. It says, I want you to go down and have an offering and I want you to ask for certain color thread. Not any thread, only specific colors. I want you to take up an offering and receive precious stones, but only certain stones. Not any stones, only certain stones. Precious metals, but not any precious metal, just certain precious metals. It's all so precise and so provision, precision. And then at the end, you know what God says to Moses? He says, all of this is according to the pattern. The pattern. There's a pattern. God is just stacking all of this information up for us. There's a pattern to the way things are. There's a pattern to the way things are in heaven. There's a pattern to the way God relates to us as his people. There's a pattern to all the things that God says and does and the timing to which he does it. He has a pattern. It's a specific way. He's not just winging anything. And so even as it, with regards to the high priest, God's bringing our attention back, quoting the fact that there is, according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain, of this... But he's, in the, he's not in the, the, the earthly tent. He's in the true tent. So Jesus' priestly work is being done in the heavenly tabernacle, not the earthly one. So he's a mediator... But he's mediating from a whole different vantage point altogether. And so, his sacrificial work is finished. We're going to pull all this together in a moment. But his priestly work continues. All right? So how is is this a greater covenant? Covenant? Verse 6. But as it is, Jesus has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant He mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises. Hmm. See, I wanted you to understand how phenomenal the old covenant was. And yet, now... It's not that the old covenant is bad. It's just the new covenant is better on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So now in this section, this is what's going to happen. I want us to zero in and unpack the new covenant's wealth for us today. Which, honestly, it's overwhelming. It is truly overwhelming. So in Luke 22, Jesus, uh, the Bible says that Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, and we have this conversation last Sunday morning, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, This is my body. Which is given to you, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Hmm. Now, what was going on in that moment? What what precipitated Jesus to say those words to his disciples in that moment... That was a moment of, of, you know, as their spiritual father. It was a moment of great pride. It was was clearly a high point in in their life. As their betrayer has, uh, the fact that there's a betrayer among them has been exposed. The fact that none of them had any clue who the betrayer was or understood anything about anything that Jesus had been telling them for the last three years. In other words, it is... It just precedes Jesus sweating blood while the bonehead disciples are snoring in the background. This just precedes that, and he lowers this on them. Clearly not as a result of any behavior, not not a reward for, for a job well done. This is not an attaboy, hey, way to go. In the midst of all of this tension... He just takes the initiative to make a covenant. He just says, hey, fellas, by the way, do this in remembrance of me. I mean, 90% of it goes right, it just right over their head. So the question is, what would God do to make this covenant better than the old one. I mean, how how is he going to improve on it specifically? What's going to help you tomorrow with this conversation? Well, he would not only keep his end of the bargain, but he would also pay the penalty for our failure and keep our end of the bargain as well. You see, when he says, when he takes the bread and breaks it, and when he takes the cup and drinks it, we don't in any way, shape, or form Deserve any of that. He just announces it. And he's the only one that knows that he has to hold up both ends of what he's about to say. Not only does he have to do it all, but then he has to hold us up after it's all done. You see, he fulfills his part and then lives a a perfect life and keeps our part for us. So here's what he does. He obeys the Father. Remember in John 17, he says, Father, I've completed the work which you sent me to do. So he's completed the work he was sent to do perfectly, like he does everything. He lives a perfect life. For the joy set before him, he endures the cross Then, he died to pay the penalty for our sin and covenant failings and gave us his righteousness in return as we did nothing. Nothing. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? Paul says in Romans... Much more than having now been justified. Isn't that what the Bible says? Much more than having now been justified. So he doesn't just die for us. We're not just undeserving recipients of this momentary act. But he has an ongoing ministry to sustain, to protect all that he's... So, so basically, this is what I mean by it's rigged. This is, what, this is essentially what God does. We'll just use me because I don't want to completely offend you. So we'll just use me as an example. Because I'm totally uh, in tune with the, the derelict individual that I was apart from Christ. So my horrific sin debt that i had amassed over the first 25 of my years of my life that i was utterly oblivious to the degree to which i had offended god and yet i'm a repulsive professional sinner god swoops in, forgives my sin debt, adopts me into his family, gives me a, a fabulous position within the family business, and then gets up every day and goes to work with me to make sure that I don't bungle it up. Every report that I write, he rewrites it. Every step I take, he redirects it. What I'm saying is, how rigged is that? In other words, so, so you can't say to yourself, you can't look at me, I can't look at you, we can't look at each other and go, wow, look at what a great job we're doing. No. None of us are doing a great job. Jesus is doing a great job. That's what's happening. If he stopped redirecting everything that I did momentarily, moment by moment, because think about it. If you knew me prior to Jesus, do you think it, it doesn't even make sense to the fact that do you think it would be even conceivable that he would he would captivate my affection? that he would forgive my sin, that he would adopt me into his family, and what do you think would happen the minute he let me out of his eye? The minute I got the minute I got one second, one step out of the door away from him, what do you think would have happened? It wasn't going to be good. But you know what? That never happened. You know why? Because he never leaves or forsakes me. He's with me all the time. It's a never-ending process. You get that? He never stops interceding for you. You got to just realize the, the unbelievable value of what we're seeing here. He does everything. This quote sums it up beautifully. We don't know who wrote it. A lot of people try to attribute it to John Bunyan, but I don't think he wrote it. To run and work the law commands yet gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. So some parting thoughts about having Jesus as our intercessing high priest. Some things you can put in your pocket and take to work for you tomorrow. The doctrine of intercession teaches us The great truth that Christ never ceases to intercede for his own. So I don't know if you realize this or not. Because there is a lot of confusion about this. Somehow, a lot of people are walking around that have convinced themselves of all sorts of crazy uh, theological implications of this that simply aren't true. That... You're confusing apples and oranges. So you may say something that is in the Bible, but you may be applying it in the wrong way, or you may be only saying half of what the verses, the truth is actually saying. So people people think that Jesus intercedes for us when we ask Him to. Now, let's just think about that for a second. What's going to be the track record if that's the way this works? If the only time he intercedes for you is when you ask him to, which by the way is absurd because it would make you in control in God, which would be utterly horrible. But anyway, if he only intercedes for you when you ask him to, how's that going to go? So how many good days are you going to string together on that little party train? It's going to be a fiasco. If he doesn't, Follow me every step of the way. If if I get out of His sight for one millisecond, it's going bad. It's going to go bad. Guaranteed. But He never ceases to intercede for His own. Which means that while human prayers on earth are limited in both extent and power, I mean in a, a thousand other ways, but let's just... Make it brief. While our human prayers are limited in extent and power, the intercession of Jesus knows no limits within the will of God. Now hold on, because now just keep. So he never ceases, step one. Step two is the intercessor, the mediator between you and the Father, has perfect command, perfect. Knowledge of what the will of the Father is. Right? So if he never ceases to intercede and he possesses perfect knowledge and command of the will of the Father, which he does because he and the Father are one, then that means he knows the mind of the Father and the Father knows the mind of the Son, and so there's nothing unknown between the two of them, right? So he never ceases. He has perfect command of the will. Just just let your mind run for a second about all the verses in the New Testament about prayer and answered prayer and the link between prayer, answered prayer, and the will of God. And just think about how they all fit together. You, You will not find one conversation in the New Testament about prayer that doesn't talk about the will of God, does it? Nope. Why? Because they're connected together. But guess what? That's not a problem for the child of God because we've got a never-ceasing intercessor who has perfect command of the will of the Father. That's step two. Then on top of that, because Jesus is infinite, He's able to concentrate His intercession wholly on each individual believer without any limitation or distraction from the needs of any other. Are you kidding? So the infinite nature of god the fact that he is all powerful that he's all he's omnipresent makes his capacity to intercede limitless he can intercede for every single believer on earth simultaneously and it doesn't drain his power one iota zero None whatsoever. And he's not distracted by anything else that's going on. So as he's interceding, never ceasing with perfect will of the Father, as he's interceding in his infinite capacity, he's totally zeroed in and devoted to the one for whom he's interceding. And he's all-knowing. So if you're all powerful and if you're if you're omnipresent and if you're if you are all knowing in your omniscience then wait a second So basically he can only say the best thing, right? Right? Because he has the He has perfect knowledge, perfect position, perfect everything, right? So, in effect, Hebrews assures God's children of the intercession of Christ in such a manner as would be true if Christ centered all of his love and all of his intercession on that one believer. Now, why don't you sit on that for a while? Think about that. Let that soak in. Now. Who in the room tonight has the most prolific prayer life. So let's just suppose it's you. Which it probably isn't. But let's suppose it is. Somebody in the room does. So what percentage of every waking moment of your life as a prolific prayer warrior do you pray what percentage so in any given month let's just make it simple let's just say that you're awake 12 hours and asleep 12 hours which you know just for the sake of simplicity so in the course of the 12 hours of being awake what percentage of that 12 hours, I'm not even counting the time you're asleep, just what percentage of awake time are you, are you in prayer as a prolific prayer warrior that puts the rest of us to utter shame? 5% consistently? 10% consistently? Anybody willing to venture past 10%? So let me ask you a question, child of God. When you're laying in your bed sound asleep, sleeping half your life away, what's the high priest doing? Is he waiting for you to wake up? Is he sitting there? Come on now, any day now. Because if you'd wake up, I could assume my function as high priest. Or is he interceding for you as if you were the only one? 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year every second of your life. He's working and interceding on your behalf. He's doing things, he's orchestrating things and and then as I began to think about this because he he always lives to give intercession I started just to just to, I mean I walked around for two weeks and all just Saying to myself over and over. He always lives to make intercession. Just trying to figure out what all the ramifications of that is. And I thought about all the times in my life as a born again child of God. All the times where I have been dead asleep. And then boom, I'm wide awake. And there's something pressing in on my heart. There's someone, there's a situation, there's a circumstance, there's a. And I'm up out of the bed. There is no going back to sleep. And how many times have I seen someone and said, hey, How you doing? They don't know that I woke up in the middle of the night thinking about them. You know, it's kind of awkward if you walk up and say, hey, I had a dream about you. How you doing? You know, it's weird. Because I didn't have a dream. I woke up. So I just say, hey, how you doing? They start tearing up and say well man I'm having a hard time and here's what's going on and hmm now wonder how how that happened now was that for their benefit or for my benefit it's for both right or that I just sensed that something was wrong or I have a a piece of paper and a pen a pad of paper that's Sits on my nightstand continuously. You know why? Because I wake up all the time with fantastic sermons. And I just roll over, grab the pen, turn my little light on. Lisa, she's in, you know, she's in, on Mars over there. And I'm just writing down all these things. How many times have I sat down to put my sermon together and taking all those notes out of that notepad. Things I never knew before. I never thought about before. Suddenly I started realizing what's going on. I mean, I knew that it was God and I knew it was the work of the Spirit, but it's God interceding. Have you ever woken up, went to sleep, distressed and woken up, and, so, and you just woke up. And we even say this to ourselves, well, honey, what you need is a good night's rest. And you wake up and suddenly you have peace. You went to bed. You were fretting and wound up in a knot. And you woke up and you had peace. And you just didn't really know how to explain You just said, well, I don't know. I slept. But when I woke up, I just feel better. And you just thought that sleeping made you feel better. But yet none of your circumstances changed. The same problems that you had when you went to bed, you had when you woke up. But suddenly you have peace. And I wonder how that happened. It happened because your intercessor doesn't take time off. That He's always interceding on your behalf. Always working. He's never not working. That's big information. Because, listen, we need Him every moment. And as I just thought about this particular conversation, I thought about how. I just thought about how fragile I am. I thought what if what if i didn't have an advocate who sympathized with me when i'm tempted what if instead if when we're tempted it's sin what if temptation See, temptation's not sin because Jesus was tempted. Well, trust me, we need to be all be super glad about that. But what if, what, if, what if it wasn't that way? What if I didn't have someone to sympathize with me when I'm tempted? How would that go? Don't you see what I'm trying to get you to understand? If this wasn't rigged the way it is, if God didn't rig everything for you to flourish, it's the only shot. It's the only ch- I mean, it's it's like literally making a covenant with you and me is literally like making an infant the CEO of your company, electing an infant the president of the United States and expecting things to go okay. I mean, there's no hope. You're not going to make it. You have zero chance of holding it together. But it's okay. Because he's made provision for that. In a high priest. And so like every day, countless times through the day, you can just... What if if we just started acknowledging that? When things... We just started saying, "Mm." in your heart, you just started saying, yeah, my high priest did that. I know how that happened. He took care of that. I know how that happened. He took care of that. I know how that happened. I know how that detail worked out. I know how that. I mean, I think it's just eyes to see, but I promise you. There's never a week that goes by in my life that God doesn't do something around me that is 100 100% unexplainable apart from God. 100%. There's it's impossible that things would have worked out that way. And believe me, I I don't I'm I'm not I know a lot of people are, you know, get a little goofy about stuff. But I'm a realist. Like if something could have just happened, well then, hey, maybe it just could have happened. But I'm talking about there's no way it could happen. But God intervened. Because He always lives to make intercession. So the bottom line is, although there are limitations, and that's the understatement of the century, with our human prayers, we can rest assured that there is one who never ceases to pray for us And our needs from a standpoint of perfect position, perfect knowledge and wisdom, perfect power and authority to make it all happen. Like every, whatever it is, he's the perfect one at every possible angle. It's all sort of checkmated around us. So I thought, well... When God called me to be a pastor, it's sort of like he just, uh, you know, he took goofball Tony and he put me in a giant bubble and said, okay, run around and do whatever you want to do because he knew I couldn't hurt myself because I'm in a big bouncy bubble. And so I'm just slamming into everything in every different direction and Instead of breaking bones and impaling myself, I'm just bouncing off of everything because he's got this big bubble around me, and he's taking care of me. Because if you let me out of the bubble, it's not going to go good. So he never ceases to pray for our needs. And this intercessor hmm, has all the power and favor with the Father. So, it's the only way it makes sense in Ephesians chapter 3, where he says he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above that which we ask or think. That's, that's why he can do that. That's why he does that, is because he's rigged it. So, you have a high priest in Jesus who knows every need. Before you know it. So by the time you. And then I'm done. By the time. You and me. Get to the place where we go. Uh oh. I need to pray. You know that feeling? Uh oh. I see a problem on the horizon. or Uh oh. There's a situation. By the time you say to yourself. I need to pray. And we go to our knees to be with the Father. How far ahead of us is Jesus already? How long has he already been? Interceding. Every single step. He was preparing you for uh uh-oh. Just look back and you can see. He's He's just walking right behind you. Nope, go this way. Nope, go that way. Nope, go. nope, up, nope, nope, nope. What a God we serve. What a God we serve.